Hello and welcome all. My name is Marissa and you are listening to the Shining Armor Podcast, the show hosted by a comic book newbie who likes Marvel comics and just wants to talk about Iron Man. Thank you all very much for joining me for this fifth episode of our series where we are taking a look at as much of Iron Man's comic book history as humanly possible for one person and an absurd amount of detail, probably more than the average person ever wanted to know. Hashtag sorry not sorry. This episode, we have quite a treat, as we are, for the second episode in a row, meeting another highly iconic member of Iron Man's rogues gallery, one who remains a recognizable figure in our armored hero's history, even to this day. So, sit back with your favorite beverage, whether that's coffee, tea, or Diet Coke, heck, I ain't gonna judge, and let us dive right into Tales of Suspense number 46. Iron Man faces the Crimson Dynamo. Part 1. Crafting a Rival Introducing the Dynamo DOS number 46 is cover dated October 1963 but was published in July of that year. As a reminder, I'm still waiting for feedback on whether you guys think which date is more useful, the cover date or the published date. Also, as a reminder, I have been referencing the Marvel Fandom Wiki to make sure I have these dates correct, but I recognize that these sources can always contain errors, so please feel free to let me know if I've got anything wrong here. This month's Iron Tale is credited as Story and Plot by Stan Lee, Script by R. Burns, Art by Don Heck, and lettering by Art Simek. The opening splash page drops us right into the action, depicting Iron Man attempting to catch a falling rocket, alongside a side panel showing a group of onlookers witnessing the daring rescue attempt with heightened suspense. Pun totally intended. We can presume they are all employees of the still unnamed Stark Industries, as the main lab building is shown behind the crowd. And front and center in this shot is Happy Hogan, in a nice suit as usual, and Pepper Potts, who is now a redhead. Hallelujah, everything is right with the world. Iron Man's dialogue bubble tells us that he knows the rocket has been sabotaged, while someone in the crowd of Lucky Loose doesn't think he's going to make it. Will he? Well, we'll just have to find out. According to the text blurb at the bottom of the page, the real story begins about two weeks prior to this dramatic event. So let's go back in time by going ahead to the next page. Top of page two, and our story begins proper in Soviet Russia. That's right. This is a Commie Smasher story. But it isn't your typical one. An outlier, to be sure. So before you brush it off with an eye roll, let me assuage your concerns right now. A green-suited gentleman who is heavily implied, but not directly stated to be Khrushchev, struts through a hallway flanked by two guards. He reaches the closed door of the laboratory of one Professor Anton Venko, Soviet scientist extraordinaire, who is described to be, for all intents and purposes, real hot stuff. When it comes to the field of electrical engineering, he seems to be as big a deal to the Russians as Tony Stark is to the U.S. Well, 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 people. It looks like we got ourselves a rival. 
A scientist and engineer with the skills and knowledge to create technology to compete with Stark sounds like a big deal indeed. It also doesn't escape this reader that the two even have similar given names with the same root, with Venko being called Anton and Stark's full name being Anthony. Go figure. However, it also looks as though there's trouble in these parts, as Venko seems to have very little trust in his great leader, and the Ember seems to be just as true. Almost as if they expect the other to stab them in the back at any moment. Regardless, Venko agrees to give a demonstration of his latest and greatest achievement, a deep red-colored powerhouse of an armor that is able to control the flow and discharge of electricity, and gives its wearer the appearance of a human dynamo, seemingly designed and developed specifically to give Iron Man a run for his money. As you may have guessed by now, this is the first appearance of the Crimson Dynamo armor, which will appear many more times throughout this book's history, piloted by many different individuals, the first of which is Professor Vanko here. The armor's demonstration shows that it has the ability to remote control a whole tank and output a powerful electric current. We aren't told how many volts of electricity it can put out, but it's enough to destroy the tank and supposedly short-circuit Iron Man's armor enough to make it implode in on itself, as Vanko shows on an Iron Man dummy armor he has crafted just for this demonstration. Since it's not the real Iron Man, though, We'll just have to wait and see how that turns out in actual combat with our armored hero. Following the demonstration, Mr. Glorious Ruler over here is actually intimidated by the power of the Crimson Dynamo. So much so that he's already plotting to have Vanko removed from the picture at the bottom of page 4, panel 7. Thinking to himself that Vanko's electric genius shall serve me well before I eliminate him. Cue the dramatic music. What a spoiled sport. Regardless, in the meantime, Glorious Ruler most definitely intends to use him only up until he outlives his purpose. So, he sends the Doctor on a mission to the good old US of A in order to partake in some good old-fashioned sabotage against Stark Industries, as well as prove that the Dynamo Armor can do exactly what Vanko built it to do. Take out Iron Man. Mayhem on the launch pad. Panels 5 and 6 on page 5 bring us forward in time two weeks to just before the daring rescue we see on the opening splash page. A rocket test at the Stark Labs is about to get underway, and witnesses to this event include Happy Hogan and Pepper Potts. Happy does not envy the test pilots in the slightest, stating in no uncertain terms that there is no sufficient amount of money they could pay him to go up in one of those things. In all honesty, I'm kind of on Happy's side here. You gotta be a special brand of either courageous or insane to willingly strap yourself onto a hydrogen bomb and be hurled through the atmosphere at an extreme velocity during the violent process of exiting this blue planet's orbit. A process where potentially all sorts of bad things can happen. But Miss Pepper disagrees having apparently woken up this morning and deciding to choose violence. Scoffing haughtily that if Happy had any real courage, he'd be heavyweight champ instead of Stark's chauffeur. Phew, dang girl, there's no need or reason for that kind of talk. Besides, Happy's not being able to cut it in his boxing career has nothing to do with courage 
and probably more to do with skill or luck or what have you. And Happy's rightfully cheesed off, pouting that with friends like Pepper, he doesn't need enemies. Note the friends is in air quotes, mind you. At this point, they get along like oil and water, with no indication that things will ever eventually smooth over. Top of page 6 and Happy, in his apparent bitterness, has decided to go even further, and shoots back that she'd probably even find fault with Iron Man. And speaking of the devil, why the heck isn't he here now, in case something goes wrong with the launch? If you recall from the conclusion of the last issue, Happy doesn't trust our dear old Iron Boots very much, and doesn't believe he is a reliable source of protection for Tony. Well, Tony just so happens to overhear Happy's concern, and actually thinks that the guy kinda has a point. So he comes up with one of his patented weak sauce excuses. This time he needs to make a phone call to the Pentagon, and tells the crew to continue the launch sequence as planned, as he slips away to his office to change into his armor. If you're reading along, you'll notice that a lot of Tony's gotta sneak away to become Iron Man excuses are actually kind of lame, which is why I keep pointing them out. It almost parodies itself. In this case especially, there's a huge crowd of people at this high-profile event, both support, crew, press, and other company staff who are just onlookers. Why couldn't he just sneak away into the crowd and reappear later? Why did he need an excuse here? They're on his property, for goodness sakes. He's the boss. Who's gonna say anything? Meanwhile, in a nearby patch of greenery, the Crimson Dynamo hides in the trees, ready to do some mischief at the behest of Mr. Glorious Leader and on behalf of the Motherland. He sends out an electrical signal that interferes with the rocket as it launches, shorting it out and sending it spiraling out of control, endangering not only the test pilots inside, but pretty much everyone on the launch pad. Iron Man arrives on the scene just in time to attempt to mitigate the damage, bringing us back to the scene foreshadowed, or rather, out and out spoiled, on our opening splash page, with Iron Man pondering how he's going to save the rocket and or the pilots inside if the craft is unsalvageable. And the peanut gallery, including Happy and Pepper, looking on in awe and horror and wondering if he's gonna make it. When Iron Man realizes he can't actually correct the issue from outside the craft, he defaults instead to using the sheer enhanced strength of the armor to catch the rocket in the air and guide it back down to the ground, slowing its descent enough as both Iron Man and Vehicle come back down to Earth. It's not a pretty landing, but he is able to bring the craft down in a way that ensures the safety of the pilots inside, as well as that of the onlookers on the ground. However, it is still a very heavy object, and the impact has a marked effect on our hero, even knocking him out for a second. He doesn't seem terribly injured since the armor takes the brunt of the collision, but one of the pilots remarks that the kind of force the armor just absorbed would have easily killed anyone else not named Iron Man, which gives you an idea that the man inside the armor probably has quite the headache right now. Oof. That can't feel good. It's notable that this is the first real serious field test of the durability and impact tolerance of Iron Man's armor, that it can take the brunt of a falling missile and the wearer inside is not only alive and well, but is relatively uninjured with the exception of presumably maybe a few bruises, 
and or a mild concussion at best. Granted, this is the first time this book has given any indication that a guy walking around in a giant metal suit of armor can still get pretty banged up. We aren't actually shown or told in so much detail, the closest we get being the image of Iron Man walking away dizzily in the background of panel 3, page 7, which shows the rocket pilots in utter awe that he's even standing, let alone able to walk away at all. So, we'll just have to use our imagination for now. Politics and comics? Say it ain't so. After the daring rocket rescue, Crimson Dynamo is more than a bit peeved that Iron Man just happened to arrive at the right time to foil his plans. But, he continues on with his sabotage mission regardless, figuring that he can't possibly be everywhere at once, and goes on to hit the next location. He goes around and causes disasters, destruction, and general disruption at each of SI's major locations all around the globe. And apparently does it sneakily enough that no one sees him, and personnel are only aware of the incident once it's already in progress, meaning that no one is able to even alert Tony until it's already too late and the damage has been done. After presumably several attacks, it is evident that there is some major machinations against Stark going on, and a conversation between Tony and a military official in uniform lets us know that SI's current contract for the Pentagon are in serious jeopardy of being revoked, which would irreparably damage SI's bottom line and possibly put them out of business. It's so bad that back in Washington, bottom of page 8, another group of officials in suits including the first appearance of the currently unnamed Senator Harrington Byrd. Don't worry, we'll get to him soon enough. Are seriously entertaining the notion that all of SI's sabotage is so coincidental that it might actually be on purpose, and that Stark might be colluding with the Russians. Y'all heard that, right? This man is actually insinuating that Tony is sabotaging his own operations in an attempt to undermine the U.S. military. It's only the first of many, many asinine accusations that Senator Byrd will levy at Port Tony. This guy will make it his personal mission to be a thorn in Tony's side going forward. Politicians, am I right? In any case, Washington has decided to thoroughly investigate SI for possible treason, and by proxy, Tony himself for being potentially sympathetic to the communist cause. Which sounds ludicrous, until you remember that in just the previous decade prior to this issue's publishing, the Red Scare was a very real thing, where US government officials went after an entire list of presumed communist sympathizers, whose lives they completely ruined simply to make an example of them, and to show that they will take action to protect American interests. A bit of uncomfortable truth and fiction, as this country's irrational fear of something that doesn't affect it in the very least continues to bite us in our collective rear ends to this very day. And who says there weren't politics and comics back then? Top of page 9 and SI is now receiving the official notice that the government is losing confidence in them and they are in real danger of going out of business or worse. Tony is busy racking his brain as to who it could possibly be that's after him, and if only he knew he could just go after them as Iron Man. Because that is a sane, logical, and reasonable line of thinking from a mentally sound individual. Regardless, Happy and Pepper, both in their own unique ways, Happy with straightforward eagerness, and Pepper with supportive affirmation, even while she sends some snark Happy's way, 
Each decide that they believe in Tony, and they'll stick by him, no matter what happens. How cool is this? It's so nice to finally see Tony have allies in his corner that are decidedly on his side. This won't always be the case in his book, so it's very notable when it does happen. It's nice that he isn't completely and totally alone, at least for now. Dynamo's Second Assault While our trio are firmly established as a trio, we finally catch up with Venko on page 9, panel 5, as he hides in a car in a nearby wooded area outside the main Long Island headquarters of SI, and dons the crimson dynamo armor once again, finally confident and ready enough to enact the take-out-Iron-Man part of his sabotage-SI-and-take-out-Iron-Man operation. He busts into the main plant and begins disabling electrical systems, causing fires, and generally creating all sorts of chaos. The alarm is sounded all throughout the complex. Tony sends Happy and Pepper to fetch a security detail, and as soon as they are out of the vicinity, he promptly changes into his Iron Man armor and smashes through a wall. Why? <laughs> to rush to the scene, finally coming face to face with his adversary. Thus begins this landmark first showdown between Iron Man and the Crimson Dynamo. Dynamo uses this opportunity as he finally squares off against his opponent to attempt the trick he showed off in the initial demonstration. You know, the whole imploding Iron Man's armor bit from the beginning of the story. Well, turns out, CD didn't figure our hero's innate cleverness into his equation, as Iron Man quickly becomes wise to Vanko's trick and realizes he can only be targeted while he's grounded. So he takes to the air instead and flies off, making Dynamo chase him, which is double duty of leading him away from the main facility and preventing him from doing any more damage, effectively protecting both his employees and his bottom line. As Dynamo gets pursuit, page 11, panel 2, he introduces himself and his villainous mission in rather dramatic fashion. I am Professor Van Gogh, whom our leader calls the Crimson Dynamo, but sabotage alone will not satisfy me. I have vowed to destroy Iron Man. Rather bold and damning confession, which Iron Man happens to record using a hidden recorder in his tool belt of plot convenience. This recording will come up again shortly as Tony thinks to himself that he can use it to not only prove his innocence, but also prove who the real culprit is, as Venko blatantly outs himself as the saboteur. Not a good look for the dynamo here, but he said what he said, what's done is done. Trickery, corrosion, and gaslighting are heroic actions. What? Within the following panels on page 11 through to page 12, as the Crimson Dynamo continues his pursuit of our hero, it soon becomes apparent that Iron Man isn't just leading him on a wild goose chase. He is deliberately setting a trap for him, encircling him inside a ring of trees that he has strategically cut down in order to cut him off and corner him. And presumably piss off environmentalists at that. We'll have to work on this reckless regard for Mother Nature, my dude. You can't just go around cutting down trees all willy-nilly. The ruse successfully takes Crimson Dino by surprise, and while his guard is down, Iron Man swoops down from the air, lifting the dynamo up off his feet and clean off the ground, again showing the raw strength as the dynamo armor is much larger and presumably heavier than Iron Man, even this early bulkier version. I mean, the man can catch a freaking missile. I guess lifting CD clean off the ground shouldn't be a problem, right? 
Well, if the foe he's fighting is even stronger... Yeah, we're gonna stick a pin in that for now. It'll come up sooner than you think. Banco starts to become very nervous as he realizes that Iron Man is flying them clear over Flushing Bay. And based on a nervous exchange with our hero on page 12, starting in panel 3, due to the electricity-based abilities of the Crimson Dynamo armor, he's rightfully concerned about how low to the water they're flying, and of the unfortunate and uncomfortable effects of touching the water on both him and his armored rival. Tony, however, apparently doesn't give a where are you taking me? The dynamo stammers nervously as they fly closer and closer to the water. It's a flushing bay, Iron Man replies, where we're going for a little swim. Franco must be sweating by now. But if we hit the water, the shock will electrocute us both. Since he created the dynamo armor, we have no choice but to take his word for it. However, Iron Man, in the most Baller and devil may care move we've seen from him yet. Answers Vanko's concern with a very nonchalant Who cares? As long as I make sure you never menace us again. Since we cannot defeat one another, we'll both pay the price for failure. Okay, wow. That was excessive. What the heck, Tony? Since we cannot defeat one another? First off, if you're reading along, it seemed like he was holding his own against CD quite effectively, so not sure what in blazes that's all about. But most importantly, the sequence shows us how far he is willing to go to make his opponent capitulate without having to resort to an all-out brawl unless he absolutely has to. Remember, at this point, he really isn't a fighter and won't really gain his fighting chops until much later after he's gained more experience. And that he's willing to go as far as to put his life on the line in order to make that happen. Once again reminding us that Tony Stark has a self-destructive personality and has little to no regard for his own safety and well-being. Well, luckily, Vanko, unlike our hero, cares very much about living. And he caves. And who could blame him? Getting electrocuted to death would suck royally, and he ain't about that. Iron Man places him down on a nearby dock and plays him a tape he somehow acquired. A recording supposedly of CD's glorious leader. On the tape, the boss details a plan to arrest Vanko immediately upon his return and confiscate the Crimson Dynamo armor, with the implication that the armor belongs to the state and not to the good professor. Vanko, who had already suspected treachery and subterfuge from his superior from the word go, immediately buys into the implication that there's no way they would have let him off the hook after his role in all this was said and done and he flies into a rage, angrily lamenting at the top of page 13, panel 1. So, death was to be my reward for serving him. Thing is, true as it may have been, unfortunately, here's where a bit more early installment weirdness comes into play. This particular piece of evidence, as it were, was completely and totally fabricated by Tony himself. A bit of underhanded subterfuge tricked Vanko into turning on his Soviet bosses. This is twice in as many pages where I have to scratch my head and ask, Why, Tony? What the actual heck? He could have just as easily convinced Vanko of the same without the trickery and gaslighting. 
whether he could have known it or not, those seeds of distrust were planted from the very beginning. And if he had done his homework properly, he'd have known there was no need for the fabrication. Eventually, it will be more clearly established that Tony isn't really about this kind of trickery, but for now, we can chastise this action of his as maybe not the best choice and definitely not heroic. Regardless of how it was accomplished, Vanko agrees to Iron Man's offer of political asylum and accepts the invitation to come and work for SI as the head of his own electrical research department. Regardless of how it was accomplished, Vanko agrees to Iron Man's offer of political asylum and accepts the invitation to come and work for SI as the head of his own electrical research department. In exchange, Vanko offers all of the info he has on a local underground Soviet spy network, which he readily hands over to the FBI. And again, in a twist of pure irony and showing that Tony could have convinced Vanko of his boss's subterfuge without the trickery of his own, in a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy, the big man himself loses his cool upon learning of Vanko's quite frankly inevitable betrayal, chucking a vase in the direction of two of his guards who duck out of the way, letting the vase hit the wall. He angrily raves that there is no one he can trust in his own circle, and the fact that Vanko now shares his knowledge with Stark and not him makes him absolutely livid. However, he chooses to place the lion's share of the blame solely on Iron Man, so much so that he vows in the final panel of the story, page 13, panel 7, that next day clash, Iron Man is going down. Once again, the hated American defender has foiled my plans, but next time shall be different. Next time, I shall bury Iron Man. We'll never see the guy again, so it's pretty safe to assume he isn't able to cash out on this threat. Part 2! Retcons, References, and Reflections It comes as no surprise to those familiar with the world of Marvel Comics that Crimson Dynamo is one of Iron Man's most iconic and recognizable baddies. He is the first armored foe he faces, and it sets a precedent of Iron Man facing off against other armored foes in a series of clashes to determine whose armor foe is stronger. Going forward, the armor will be worn by a number of different individuals, making this a rather unique villain, as it ultimately becomes more of a mantle passed around to different people than a title belonging to any one person. Sometimes, he isn't even a villain at all, but rather an anti-hero who just so happens to have an opposing viewpoint or method of completing a positive objective when compared to Iron Man. For example, a current, as a recurring iteration of Dynamo, could be seen fighting alongside other Russian heroes, such as Red Guardian and Ursa Major, as part of a kind of Russian Avengers, if you will. But in our immediate future, you will definitely see him appear as an antagonist to our hero, many, many times to come. Crimson Dynamo in the MCU if you only know of Iron Man from the Marvel Cinematic Universe, then Crimson Dynamo as a villain might not sound familiar to you. But what if I told you, dear listener, that you actually probably do know him, even in only a kind of roundabout manner? Allow me to clarify as I show you how you can recognize what could possibly be a legitimate representation of Crimson Dynamo in the MCU. In Iron Man 2, we are introduced to Yvonne Vanko, 
played by Mickey Rooney, goes on a revenge quest against the Stark name for besmirching his own father's legacy and reputation and leaving him with nothing. His father, you more eagle-eyed viewers might recall, was named, say it with me, Anton Vanko, and he is half-credited with creating the arc reactor alongside Howard Stark. Howard, of course, as we will find out, took all the credit for the arc reactor's creation and had Anton outed as a spy and deported back to Russia. And yet, must have had some amount of remorse or guilt over the whole thing, enough to where he named his son Anthony after him. No, I'm not overlooking that similarity. I refuse to believe it's just a coincidence. Being all this as it were, Ivan is looking for some payback. However, since Howard is no longer with us, Ivan redirects his vengeance onto Tony instead, and is determined to unleash hell upon him. Never mind that Tony has his own problems to deal with and is in no condition to have to wrestle with his father's baggage as well. In the iconic Monaco racetrack sequence, after causing a spectacular multi-vehicle wreck that certainly resulted in an unknown number of casualties, let's be real, Ivan appears on the track wearing an exosuit with two electrical vine weapons, making him more similar to Whiplash, a villain we'll be meeting later on in this series. Most MCU fan wikis and other sources, including, I believe, the film's credits themselves, even credit him as Whiplash. Even though in the comics, Whiplash is not related to Venko in the slightest. We'll cover this in much more detail once we finally meet Whiplash in our journey here. And that's coming up sooner than you think. However, later on in the movie during the Zen Garden sequence that occurs at the attack on Stark Expo, Yvonne appears ready to do battle once again, this time wearing heavy-duty armor of his own, as he squares off against the combined forces of Iron Man and War Machine, played by Don Cheadle armed to the teeth, with weapons galore, and towering over both of our heroes by a significant margin. This armor is very likely meant to remind comic-savvy viewers of the Crimson Dynamo armor, but without the signature crimson paint job. The guy's name is Venko, for crying out loud. Or possibly even the Titanium Man armor. We'll be mating this guy later on as well. Heck, it may have even been inspired in part by both. It's hard to say without the backing of a primary source, especially due to the rather fragmented and unfocused nature of the film as it exists in its released form. But I do vaguely remember watching some behind-the-scenes feature or other that tangentially linked Yvonne's finale armor to the Crimson Dynamo specifically, and I would love for some confirmation on this front from anyone who can more clearly remember the source. As an aside, admittedly, Iron Man 2 is kind of a hot mess of a movie, how darned if I don't love it to pieces anyway. I hope we can see just within this short breakdown why I believe some brilliance does exist in the script, and the theme of legacy and trauma, both for Yvonne and Tony. And that was just enough executive meddling to bury pretty much all of it. Crying shame, really, but as I just stated, I actually still love this movie unironically, even in all its imperfections, both for what it is, as well as what it could have been. Crimson Dynamo in Marvel Animation Though he doesn't appear in the MCU so explicitly, Crimson Dynamo does appear in various other pieces of Marvel media, specifically in animation. One of his most notable appearances is in the series The Avengers Earth's Mightiest Heroes, where he teams up with Baron Zemo as a member of the Masters of Evil, alongside the Abomination, Amora the Enchantress, Scourge the Executioner, and Wonder Man 
aka Simon Williams, after he gets all Ionic powered up. CD doesn't have a huge role in this series, but the armor design is actually really creative and cool, and I kind of wish they did a little more with him. But since he isn't traditionally an Avengers enemy, as it were, I can see why there isn't a huge focus on him as with other baddies. As another aside, you've got to be a special kind of sociopath to actually go around calling yourselves the Masters of Evil. Crimson Dynamo also plays a part in Season 1 of the CGI animated series Iron Man Armored Adventure, where the armor is an exosuit designed for space exploration, and once again decidedly not crimson-colored. The naming seems purely a reference to the suit's country of origin, which remains consistent. The Dynamo's pilot, also named Ivan Vanko, surprise surprise, is a Russian astronaut who was stranded in space for a year before finally falling back down to Earth. Upon realizing that the suit had kept him alive all this time after learning that he was taken for dead and bitter about being separated that long from his wife and son, he vows vengeance upon the research team that sent him up there in the first place, prompting Iron Man to have to try and bring him back around to settle his wrath. I said this in the previous episode, but I'm going to say it again. The show is seriously good, y'all. It's way better than it has any right to be. From what I understand, Dynamo also appears in the 90s Iron Man animated series, but I haven't actually watched this series past the first episode as of time of recording, so I can't go into explicit detail about his appearance here. Let me know if you think I should, though, and I'll definitely give it a watch. Also, let me know if you know of any other appearances of CD in other media, be it other series, video games, etc. I'd love to hear about any that I missed here or that I just didn't know about. Even though the story starts out like it's going to be another run-of-the-mill Iron Man Kami Smasher story, the conclusion ends up being rather surprising, with Vanko turning on his bosses and joining up with our hero. It's an interesting change of pace from what we've seen so far and gives the reader a new expectation for the book going forward. These early stories will continue to be hit or miss, but the ones that hit really do hit quite nicely. You could do a lot worse for a first appearance of what will become one of Iron Man's more iconic adversaries. Thank you all very much for joining me for episode 5. In episode 6, we're going to meet another will-be mainstay in Iron Man's Rogues Gallery for the third time in a row. So stay tuned as we are introduced to... The Melter! In the meantime, please follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And tell your family, friends, or whoever you think may be interested. Remember, sharing is caring. As always, the intro and outro theme is Breakdown by Kevin McLeod. Until next time, this is Marissa, and you've been listening to the Shining Armor Podcast, the show hosted by a comic book newbie who likes Marvel comics and just wants to talk about Iron Man. Stay safe and be good, y'all.